Dr. Bill Ferris? Yeah. Hey, this is Don Flemings, the American Songster. Hey, Don. Hey, yeah, I got a new podcast that I'm doing. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind coming down to the studio and chatting with me a little bit. I'd love to. I'll be right down. Hello, folks. From North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, this is American Songster Radio. I'm Dom Flemons. Today on the show, we're joined by my good friend Bill Ferris. He grew up in Mississippi, which is where he fell in love with music of the American South. He spent his entire career recording, photographing, and sharing that music and culture. Every generation has an obligation to record and document maybe their grandparents, it may be elders in the community, and I tell my students the African proverb that when an old woman or man dies, a library burns to the ground, and there is a sense of urgency to the work. Bill and I talk about his life's work and what he's learned along the way. Plus, I'll have a song for you. Being all around this whole round world, Lord, I just got back today. Save all my money and I give it all to you, honey, baby, what more can I do? We'll have more of that tune later here on American Songster Radio. I'm Dom Flemons. Thanks for listening. I'm joined today by Bill Ferris from the Center for the Study of the American South. Bill is a friend and a scholar. He served as the chair of the National Endowment for the Humanities under President Bill Clinton, and in my opinion, wrote one of the finest books on Mississippi blues out there. It's a book called Give My Poor Heart Ease. Bill, welcome. Thanks for coming in and talking with us today. It's wonderful to be with you, Dom. Thank you, Bill. Well, uh, I know you have a very... uh, uh, interesting journey that is different than most people getting into the uh, folklore and the study of uh, the American South culture and foodways and music. But what got you started in it? Well, I really started growing up on a farm in Mississippi. And as a young kid, a baby almost, going to a black church on the farm, a lady named Mary Gordon would take me every first Sunday. And I learned the hymns and I just felt very, very close emotionally to that world. And as I grew older, I realized that though there were no hymnals in the church, and unless they were recorded when those families were gone, the music would disappear. So I began to do tape recordings and photographs and later filmed that community, and that just led me further afield to the blues and to trying to understand what we call now the American South. For me, it was just home. And so with that, now, what, what, did your, what did your parents do? My father was a farmer. My mother was a homemaker. She raised five children and raised a lot of other children around the farm and our friends. She sort of adopted anyone that we brought home and would take care of them. Uh, But the farm was isolated, and you relied on each other and the community in ways that were special. And the older I get, the more I appreciate those roots and the strength they gave me. 
Well, that's a beautiful thing. You know, that's one of the things that I found that when I started living in the South that I found very unique that that a lot of people, I guess, would uh, say seems contradictory from the image we tend to Mm -hmm. see of the South where everything is very segregated all the time, especially Mississippi is one of Mm -hmm. those places that tends to uh, be the ultimate depiction of the South as being a very segregated place. But what you're telling me is that uh, socially uh, people had to work together in some sort of degree just because they were they were all neighbors and you know maybe that there was uh some leeway on some of the social pressures that came from the i don't know like say like the bigger towns or like if you went on a statewide level you'd have a different story than in the individual communities well it's true my father was a wonderful man he always taught us to respect people for who they are regardless of race or any other differences that we felt. And he was respected by the black community. Uh, My brother ran for state senator, and when he campaigned in the black churches, they told him that my father was one of two white men in Vicksburg they felt they could trust and go to for advice. And Daddy knew the uh, ancestral lineage of every family, black and white, and when he would meet someone, he would say, now you are so-and-so's son or grandson, and there was always a sense of uh, kinship. Uh, Whether you were actually related or not, you felt like people knew your ancestors and you were deeply connected to the whole community as a family. So let's move on from there since... um you mentioned that you started doing tape recordings of at, at the church and things like that to kind of um, just to retain some of those early memories. Of, of course, that's one of the things that's so important is that we all have our unique experiences and uh, the fact that you had the forethought to think, oh, well, I should get this down in some sort of way is, is an amazing thing. So how did that, uh, how did that transition as you went to... Uh, to now become one of the the famed the famed Dr. William R. Ferris folklorist and uh, writer of the Encyclopedia of the South, how did that evolve uh, uh, over time? Well, I guess it's partly a Southern quality to want to preserve things and to save things that you feel are important. And for me, the most beautiful. I didn't have a sense of wanting to do anything academically. I just loved the music. It was something that touched my heart. These spirituals, and later the blues, uh, and later rock and roll. Uh, I just loved it. I loved to dance to it. I loved to listen to it. And uh, I used the academy and the study of the music as simply a way of justifying having a job that kept me doing what I really wanted to do and get paid for it. Well, now you mentioned rock and roll. Now, were those were those two mutually mutually exclusive things for you, or was that did you did you uh, move away from the older music at any point, and then say, oh, I like like rock and roll, and then come back to it, or was was it all just one thing that came in a single wave? I think it came in a single wave uh, because they are connected. I, we look at Elvis Presley, his first record. Uh, That's All Right, Mama, and Blue Moon uh, are homages to both the blues and the bluegrass. Uh, 
And so when I, I would listen to radio at night, WLAC in Nashville, Tennessee, and they played blues and rock and roll, uh, and it was all joined at the hip. Mm. And our generation in the 50s was blessed with the emergence of a music that stood with a foot in both black and white musical traditions, and Elvis Presley was the symbol of it. And, and that's something that's really great too. Is that that was so that was it was still popular music. These were still the new records that were coming out, and because now we we kind of think of all that stuff as old fashioned. But mm-hmm. so that so so there were two strains of music. You had this this uh, music that was in the community that was being sung, and then there were these new popular records that were taking those old traditions and making them into uh, newer traditions, going on at the same time. Um, Something that uh, I've wondered about, this is something that comes up a lot when when I'm doing interviews and things, is uh, when you make uh, blues into a formalized study, do you ever find anything uh, doesn't translate? Or do you you ever find that, uh, let me think how to describe this. So like, um, because when you take in the music, that's one thing. But then you have to process it and make it into a tangible form so that people can reference it later. Um, do you ever fear that things get lost along the way when you're when you're documenting it and getting it out there? That's a great question, and I have wrestled with that. When I first began, I would come back to the University of Pennsylvania to present my work, and I would play the tape recording and talk about it. And then I would put my photographs on the wall of the musicians, and I felt this is still not enough. And I began to do documentary film, Mm -hmm. which really uh, immerses you in what's going on in a powerful way. And then when you write the dissertation, it's an academic treatise, Mm -hmm. and you feel this is really not where I want to be because none of the people I worked with are going to read this. So I want to write a book that the musicians could take and share. And I wrote my first blues book in 1970, Blues from the Delta. And I sent it to all the musicians I had worked with. And they wrote me back letters saying, my neighbor took the book, send me some more. Well, that was the greatest compliment. And my latest book, Give My Poor Heart Ease, Uh, is a work that gives the voice to the musicians. It takes it from the scholar, and it's their book, and each chapter is the voice from B.B. King to prison inmates. They all speak in a thoughtful, beautiful way about what it's like to be black in Mississippi, to play the blues or to sing spirituals. But to the degree that we can give voice to the people with whom we work, then we've succeeded. Mm-hmm. It's not about us. We're a medium, and if we get out of the way and let their voices be heard, I think that is the ultimate achievement. You started publishing works in 1970. Are there any things that you can say about doing folklore now and in, uh, in now in the early 21st century? that's different from folklore back then, or if there's uh, anything that maybe even you'd advise the listeners to do uh, with all the new technology that's around or anything like that? 
Well, the French say plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The more things change, the more they stay the same. They stay the same because every generation has an obligation to record and document. It may be their grandparents, it may be elders in the community, and I tell my students the African proverb that when an old woman or man dies, a library burns to the ground, and there is a sense of urgency to the work. But I also tell my students they are living in a golden age. What took me <clears throat> a car with a trunk of equipment to record, film, and photograph, they can do with their iPhone. Hmm. They can do high-definition film with sound, uh, and they can do it with a little tripod that requires nothing but available light. Mm -hmm. uh, we are living in an era in which the technology is virtually free that allows you to do things in my generation that were expensive and largely inaccessible, mm -hmm. even to folklorists. But I have always loved technology and cameras, and I pushed hard and through grants and other sources I was able to to get what I needed to document the people and the traditions but today uh, it's a global access people all over the world have access to a camera and a phone that allows folklore work ethnographic capturing of voices and faces that are really unparalleled. So I tell my students, you really need to get to work and to take advantage of the resources that are at your doorstep. Yeah, because I think about, uh, you know, I think a lot about Alan Lomax's um, idea of cultural equity and how in some ways we've really fulfilled what mm -hmm. he wrote out, that everybody should have their little piece of the puzzle and... Uh, and that each voice should have their 15 minutes in the big box. And it's very mm -hmm. interesting to see that really play out with uh, with iPhones and with the uh, social media and things like that. And uh, well, you, I've learned a lot from you when it, when it comes to this as well, Bill. I see every time we we meet up at a, a show or something like that, you're you're taking pictures, you're getting film, and you're getting you're getting pieces for the for the archive just right as we're standing right there. And it's a uh, it's very admirable, and I, I actually have to have to do that a little bit more myself. <laughs> Thank you. Well, folks, uh, Bill Ferris is an author, scholar, and the senior associate director of the Center for the Study of the American South at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Bill, thanks for joining us on the American Songster podcast. Thank you, Don. I'm going to close out today's show with a song. Well, this is a song called Oh Babe, It Ain't No Lie. I first heard this from the wonderful recordings of Elizabeth Cotton made by my great uh, mentor, Mike Seeger. And her music was the first music I heard that really made me think about North Carolina, even when I was back in Phoenix. And once I moved out here, I started living in Carborough. 
And that happened to be where Elizabeth Cotton was from. And, of course, being here in WUNC, I can't help but think about Elizabeth Cotton in some way or another. But talking with Bill, who is currently teaching over at UNC, it just got me thinking about this particular song. And I always like this one because, first, the melody and the, the chords, but then when I heard Elizabeth Cotton tell the story about why she wrote it, it really just uh, tickled me to death. I mean, she... She said she, when she was a young girl, there was this old woman in her town that would tell all these lies on her, and, and that'd get her in trouble. And so she said she was going to write a song that said, uh, One old woman in this town keep a-telling her lies on me, and I wish to my soul that old woman would die. She keep a-telling her lies on me. And I just thought that was a really funny notion for a little girl to write a song like that. But for uh, the... Uh, harshness of the lyric it has a pretty melody but let me play it for you
give it all to you Honey, baby, what more can I do? I'm living's mighty high American Songster Radio is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC this episode was produced by David Brower and me, Dom Flemons, the American Songster. There are more episodes up on iTunes, Google Play, and just about everywhere else people are sharing podcasts. Please listen, subscribe, and tell a friend. This is Dom Flemons, the American Songster. I'll see you next time. Music